We've been looking at 2 Samuel, and we are in a section of this book where David's kingdom is being established. And it's being established as a result of God's promise to David. That's made very clear. Last week, we saw some big results of that promise in chapter 8. We saw how David defeated the hostile nations all around Israel. The Philistines, the Moabites, the Arameans, the Edomites, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites. Now, of course, that didn't happen all at once, but those victories were grouped together in chapter 8 to give a big picture for us. It was a picture of God's salvation. He saves his people from their enemies. We also saw in that chapter how the wealth of those nations found its way into Israel. And the chapter closed with the comment that David did what was just and right for all the people. So chapter 8 gave us a wide-angle view of David's kingdom. It taught us about the kingdom of God, actually. The kingdom of God is a place of salvation for God's people. It's a place where all glory and splendor are going to end up. And it's a place of justice and righteousness. David's kingdom gives us a preview of those things. We find the ultimate reality in the kingdom of David's descendant, Jesus Christ. But at this point, the thing for us to remember about chapter 8 is the wide view we got in that chapter. We saw things there on an international scale. It was all about nations and their armies and their great wealth. It was about justice and righteousness for all Israel. Chapter 8 showed the kingdom on a big canvas. We saw the effect of the kingdom on thousands and thousands of people. But this morning, we're going to see how the kingdom affects just one person. The wide-angle lens is replaced by a zoom lens. And the switch of focus is very striking. It's like flying over a city from the air, then dropping down to land in somebody's back garden. And it shows us that the rule of God's king is personal. It's not just about governments and armies. God's kingdom is concerned with people like you and me. So let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 312. And in the large print, 480. 2 Samuel 9, and we'll read the whole chapter. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul, to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? the king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. 
When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. This is God's word. And this passage falls into two sections. First of all, in verses 1 to 5, we see the purposeful faithfulness of the king. Look again at verse 1. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? The words of David's question don't seem to belong together. Why would he show kindness to the house of Saul? The house of Saul means the relatives of Saul. And in case we've forgotten, most of 1 Samuel was taken up with Saul's reign in Israel. And most of Saul's reign was taken up trying to kill David. Saul, while he was king, let Israel go to pot while he was chasing David the length and breadth of Israel. He was jealous of David's popularity. Saul saw David as a rival and he couldn't leave David alone. That's the Saul David is talking about here. First Samuel ended with Saul's death. But we've heard more about his house already in 2 Samuel. His son Ishbosheth claimed the throne after his dad's death. And for two years, he existed as a rival king to David. At least part of Israel followed Ishbosheth. But now Ishbosheth is also dead. He was murdered by his own men. David is undisputed king of all Israel. And according to the rules of ancient kingship, when a new king gets power, he wipes out any potential rivals. That's how you stay in power as a king. You get rid of your opposition. And the greatest potential rivals were relatives of the old king. 
So a reader in the ancient world would not be surprised to hear David saying, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? Of course he needs to know that so he can get rid of them. But that same reader would be shocked to hear the rest of David's words. He wants to show kindness to Saul's house. It was one thing for David to leave Saul alone when Saul was king. David wasn't going to remove what God had put in place. He waited for God to do that himself. We can probably understand that. David was a God-fearing man. But here, David is actively pursuing Saul's relatives to bless them. And he explains why he's doing this. It's not because he loved Saul. It's for Jonathan's sake. Jonathan was another one of Saul's sons. We've mentioned Ishbosheth already. He followed his father's footsteps by opposing David. But Jonathan was nothing like his father and his brother. Jonathan was a great man. Not only a great warrior, but an incredible friend to David. When he watched the young David killing the Philistine giant Goliath, when Jonathan saw that, he realized God had big plans for David. And we're told in 1 Samuel, Jonathan immediately (coughs) gave up his own right to the throne. And he signaled that by taking off his royal robes and his sword and handing them over to David. In the normal order of things, Jonathan would have inherited the throne from Saul. But he said to David, you shall be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Jonathan recognized the king God had chosen and so Jonathan stepped aside. Now as it turned out, Jonathan didn't live to see David crowned king. He never was second to David. He died in the same battle as Saul. But before that, Jonathan and David made a covenant with each other. And this is what David asked, this is what Jonathan asked David to promise at that time. He said to David, show me unfailing kindness, like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Jonathan realized that his own family were among David's enemies, but he asked David to spare them. And we're told David made that promise not out of any obligation, but out of love for his friend Jonathan. And now, in our passage, somewhere between 15 and 20 years after that, David sets about honoring his promise. And we all know this is not a common thing. Promises are easily made and even more easily broken. When people are campaigning for political office, they're all about making promises. In fact, it seems sometimes they'll promise just about anything if they think it'll get them elected. But when the election's over, 
How many of those promises ever become reality? And it's not just politicians who are guilty of this. What about marriage promises? To love and to honor and to protect a spouse. How many people treat those promises seriously? How many are willing to forget those promises when they begin to seem inconvenient? In this world, faithfulness is in pretty short supply, it seems. But faithfulness is central to the kingdom of God. And David shows that here. And he's purposeful about keeping this promise. You'll notice he doesn't wait for Saul's family to come knocking on his door. He pursues them. And the search turns up a former servant of Saul, a man who has some news for David. Look again at verse 2. Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodibar. This kindness may be for Jonathan's sake, but the passage emphasizes for us it is still kindness to the house of Saul, the house of David's enemy. And Mephibosheth himself turns out to be a completely helpless enemy. He's crippled. Now some people have read this passage and they've questioned David's motives here. They wonder if David is operating on the principle keep your friends close and your enemies closer. In other words, they wonder if he wants Mephibosheth close so he can keep an eye on him. Make sure he doesn't lead a rebellion. But that interpretation of the passage ignores this detail. Mephibosheth is no threat to David. He couldn't lead a rebellion. He couldn't even walk. David could safely leave him out in Lodabar. We're not exactly sure where that is on the map. There are a couple of good possibilities. But what we do know about Lodebar is that it's east of the Jordan River. So it's out of the way in Israel. And the name Lodebar means no pasture. That would suggest it's a bit of a wasteland. So yes, Mephibosheth is an enemy, but he's a crippled enemy, and he's stuck in the ancient equivalent of Siberia. From a political point of view, David has no need to be concerned about this guy. But David is not thinking politically here. He's thinking like God's anointed king. David is going to be faithful to his promise and he's going to be purposeful about his faithfulness. Mephibosheth can't get to David himself. 
But verse 5 says the king has him brought from Lodabar to Jerusalem. David has said he wants to show kindness. But he hasn't explained what that kindness will look like. But now he does. In verses 6 to 13, we see the extraordinary kindness of the king. And Mephibosheth himself shows just how extraordinary this is. He arrives at the palace expecting the chop. Five times the passage refers to him as a relative of Saul. And Mephibosheth is well aware that's what he is. He's well aware how kingship works in his part of the world. Relatives of the old king get liquidated by the new king. So Mephibosheth is quaking. Remember, he's crippled. But verse 6 says he goes through the agony of bowing down to David. And whatever that might have looked like in his case, whatever kind of bow he managed, it's obvious why he's bowing. He's terrified. We know that because David reassures him in verse 7, don't be afraid. And there's a little detail that indicates David's tone here. Whenever David speaks to Ziba in this passage, he's referred to either as King David or the king. But whenever he speaks to Mephibosheth, he's referred to simply as David. In other words, when he speaks to this helpless, trembling man, David drops the formality. He speaks with gentleness. And he promises extraordinary kindness. In verse 7, Don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. David mentions Jonathan again. And we've looked at the promise he made to Jonathan. It seems that was simply a promise to spare the life of Jonathan's family. And David could have fulfilled the promise by simply leaving Mephibosheth in Lodabar. But David is going way beyond what he agreed to. Here, he promises to give Mephibosheth not just life, but also security and honor. The land that belonged to Saul is Saul's private land. Mephibosheth is now going to receive that wealth for himself. And the greatest honor a king could give was a place at his own table. Mephibosheth is going to receive that too. And notice, David is promising him a permanent place. You'll always eat at my table. That meant you were accepted as a son of the king. The passage will make that clear further on. David is not only sparing Mephibosheth, he's not only bringing him in from the wasteland, he is promising here to crown him with glory and honor. 
And in the face of this undeserved kindness, verse 8 says Mephibosheth bows again. And he says, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? We have seen a similar reaction from David himself in this book. When David received the promise of God in chapter 7, he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? That is how we react when we realize we're getting more than we deserve. That is the effect extraordinary kindness has on us. When we truly see it for what it is, we're shocked and humbled. Mephibosheth realizes it would have been no great surprise if the king had treated him like a dead dog, just an insignificant carcass, not worth the king's time or attention. David has gone beyond his original word, and now he's true to his new promise. Look at verse 9. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. As we read this, we might wonder why Ziba hasn't already been taking care of Mephibosheth. After all, verse 2 called him a servant of Saul's household. That would seem to include serving Saul's grandson. We might wonder if Ziba was happy to have Mephibosheth out of the way in Lodibar. Had that left Saul's land for Ziba and his 15 sons to enjoy? Is that why Saul's land had to be restored to Mephibosheth? There's no record that David ever took it for himself. I mention that because we're going to meet Ziba again later in this book. And when we meet him again, our suspicions about him might get even stronger. For the moment, we can just store this thought away in our minds. Ziba equals suspicious character. But here, the focus is not really on Ziba, it's on David's orders to Ziba. He and his sons are to provide for Mephibosheth. And then the point David made earlier is underlined for us in verse 11. His crippled enemy, Mephibosheth, is now accepted as a son of the king. And verse 13 tells us he eats at the king's table not just once, but always. This man has been carried from the wasteland of Lodibar to the center of the kingdom. 
And the passage ends by telling us something we already know. Mephibosheth was lame in both feet. And so we have to take the bait here and ask, okay, is there some point we're supposed to get from this lame thing? Is that why it's repeated for us? Well, on one level, we could say, yes, it underlines the fact that Mephibosheth is no threat to David. He is not at the palace because he's under surveillance. David doesn't need to keep him under surveillance. He couldn't be a threat to David even if he wanted to be. His place at the table is pure grace on David's part. But there's something more going on here to this mention of him being lame, this repeated mention. We're being pointed to something more significant. And the key is back in verse 3. When David first speaks to Ziba, he explains that he wants to show kindness to Saul's relative. But David describes it in verse 3 as God's kindness. David is aware he's not just the king. He's God's king. At this point in history, God is ruling his kingdom through David. So the kindness David shows Mephibosheth is God's kindness. And the reason the passage goes on about lameness, that's because of God's own law. Back in the book of Leviticus, God set out rules for who could come near to him. And this is what God said. No man who has any defect may come near. No man who is blind or lame, disfigured or deformed. No man with a crippled foot or hand. What is the point of that? Is God saying the lame and crippled are worse than everybody else? No, if we read through the book of Leviticus, we find it's full of stuff like this. And the point of it all is to teach us about the human heart. Leviticus uses physical problems we can see to teach us about spiritual problems we can't see. The lame couldn't come near to God because lameness is a kind of brokenness. And brokenness doesn't belong in God's presence. He's perfect. Only wholeness belongs in his presence. And as that rule was applied in the nation of Israel, Israel was being taught a much bigger truth. We're all broken whether we're physically lame or not, we're broken inside. We can't see it, but our hearts are crippled with pride and selfishness and all kinds of sin. Spiritually speaking, every single one of us is crippled. And day after day, through God's law, that point was drummed home to the nation of Israel. Every time they saw physical cripples excluded from God's presence, 
They were supposed to see themselves. Men and women crippled by sin. But here in our passage, God upends that. Now that God's anointed king is in place in Israel, now an enemy, a crippled enemy, is brought to the king's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth is a living lesson. David's kingdom is God's kingdom and God brings broken people near. He shows grace to cripples. The physically and the spiritually crippled. He accepts the lame as his own sons and daughters. And this good news crosses over to the kingdom of David's descendant, Jesus Christ. The New Testament records many stories that Jesus told, parables. And Jesus told one parable to explain who is going to eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Who is going to eat at the king's table? And in that story, the servants are told this. Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Jesus was using a story about physically broken people to teach a spiritual truth about his kingdom. His kingdom is a place for broken people. The king's table is for people crippled by sin. People who have been brought near by the king. But at this point, we should be asking, how can God do this? Remember, the reason sinners don't start out in his presence is because he's holy. Sin doesn't belong with him. That was the whole point of the law. Sin deserves his wrath. It deserves exclusion forever. So we read this and we can appreciate that God wants to be kind, but how can he be? Does he just forget his holiness? Does he set it aside? No, if he did that, he would no longer be God. The New Testament explains how a holy God can accept broken sinners. His perfect son came to earth to be broken on the cross so that we could be healed. Here's how the Apostle Paul explains it. He says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. What Paul is saying is on the cross, Jesus became the crippled one. He took our brokenness and sin on himself. And he paid the price of that sin. 
He was cut off from God. He was excluded. And he did it so that you and I could be brought near to God. Every single one of us starts out as a spiritual Mephibosheth. No matter how healthy our bodies are, we are born spiritually crippled, far from God. But Jesus pursues us. He brings us to his table. And he brings us not just as guests, but as sons and daughters. So let's never forget how privileged we are that the king would go after us and bring us to his kingdom. But maybe you don't feel able to rejoice in this. Maybe you're still on the outside. Maybe you feel too broken for the king to care about. Like Mephibosheth, how could the king notice a dead dog like me? Maybe you feel like that. But don't you see, Jesus specializes in the lame and the broken. The ones who will stay outside the kingdom are the ones who think they're something special. The ones who think they have something great to give the king. The kingdom is for those who know they're broken. It's for men and women who know they are lost without God's mercy. So in a moment, as we sing these last songs, if you can see your own brokenness, ask God to show you his love for the broken. Ask him to show you the love that caused the Son of God to be broken for you. And then you can respond to him by saying thank you. Let's do that together as we sing, Jesus, thank you.